Astro Leamond, and welcome to the Spoondrift podcast. The word spoondrift describes the spray of water that a strong gust of wind can blow right off the top of a wave. Here on the Spoondrift, I talk about the spoondrift from the ocean of ideas. There's really no bounds to what can be talked about. The goal is to just unearth new perspectives and inspire curiosity. You are about to listen to an archive episode from the Spoondrift pilot series called Conjuring Curiosity. Back on June 18th, 2020, this episode was premiered exclusively on Spinnaker Radio. In this episode, I talked about rarely visited national parks, an ancient temple that had just been discovered in Italy, and some new evidence that had just been discovered supporting the general theory of relativity. There's a lot of information here. Here it is. I love hiking. The outdoors is one of my favorite places to be, and hiking is a great way for me to be outdoors. While I haven't ever been backpacking, I have been on some plenty of rugged day hikes, and I found them to be most relaxing. I enjoy the fresh air and the sounds of the woods. Maybe there's some water flowing through a stream, or some birds chirping. Yeah, now that sound is, that's relaxing. I am most definitely one to just sit outside and listen to the songs of the birds. In Northeast Florida, I've hiked in a number of parks. Ones I can think of right now are, uh, let's see, the Guanatola Mata Matanzas National Estuarine Research Reserve, Fort Clinch State Park, Hannah Park, and uh, that, that's, that's all I can think of right now. Man, that list is way too short. I need to go on some more hikes. I've, I also have some aspirations to hike in state parks that are not in Northeast Florida, or even Florida at all, or national parks, or just mini parks. <laughs> in the past few weeks, I must say that travel has been on my mind quite a bit. And let me tell you, there are some really spectacular images out there on the internet. Some amazing landscapes, both in the US and in other countries. And seeing those pictures just makes me think about how amazing it would be to actually see those places with my own eyes. I actually stumbled upon a strange article that detailed how popular tourist destinations are for the first time in a long time, almost, if not completely, empty right now. Travel is at a crazy low, and National Geographic published an article with images of usually packed tourist destinations that usually are just bustling with people, but they're now desolate. I remember images of the Spanish steppes, as well as the Trevi Fountain in Rome, Italy, almost completely vacant. Also, the Gyeongbokgung Palace in South Korea was pretty much deserted in one photo. Well, well, actually, while on the topic of how low attendance is at certain travel destinations, I also found an article published by Travel and Leisure about the least visited U.S. national parks. Coronavirus or not, just the parks that have the least amount of people who show up. And they're they're just, that's normal for them. People don't go there very often. And the top 15 least visited, with number one being the least visitors, were as follows. Number 15, Voyagers National Park in Minnesota. Number 14, Guadalupe Mountains National Park in Texas. Number 13, Pinnacles National Park in California. Number 12, Congaree National Park in South Carolina. Number 11, Virgin Islands National Park 
in the Virgin Islands. Number 10, the Great Basin National Park in Nevada. Number 9, the Katmai National Park and Preserve in Alaska. Number 8, the Dry Tortugas National Park in, in Florida. It's actually down in the Keys. Number 7, Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve in Alaska. Number 6, National Park of American Samoa in, you guessed it, American Samoa. Number five, North Cascades National Park in Washington. Number four, Isle Royal National Park in Michigan. Number three, Lake Clark National Park and Preserve in Alaska. Number two, Kobuk Valley National Park in Alaska. And the number one least visited national park in the United States, the Gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve in Alaska. Now, I found it interesting, but not really that surprising, that five of those 15 parks were located in Alaska. Some of that probably has something to do with the fact that Alaska is a bit out of the way for people living in the contiguous 48 states, but that's all the better. The less people there are, and the less traffic there are in these parks in Alaska, the more there is to explore. So, I don't see it as, a, as, as that big of a problem. <laughs> I was also pleasantly surprised that some of these parks on the list are not too far from Northeast Florida. For instance, the Dry Tortugas National Park down in the Florida Keys and the Congaree National Park located in South Carolina. Now the trip to the Dry Tortugas would take about eight hours, pretty significant trip, but the trip to Congaree National Park would only take about four hours. And four hours sounds pretty reasonable to me. You could easily make it a weekend trip, or maybe a week. Something interesting about the Congaree National Park is that most of the park is pretty low-lying. In fact, most of it is so low-lying that for part of the year during the summer, about mid-May to June, the majority of the park is underwater, covered with a thin sheet of water. And that is kind of neat. <laughs> Now, in order to make sure that the water doesn't keep people from visiting the park, can, um, raised walkways have actually been constructed throughout the park. From the images that I've seen, the view from those raised pathways is truly, truly spectacular. A thin layer of water, maybe just a couple of inches deep, covers the entire forest floor. While when still, it's just crystal clear, and a reflection of the sky and the trees above just slides across the water and meets your eyes. Oh, and did I mention that the Congaree Forest has some of the tallest trees in the United States? Champion trees grow there. And in, in case you're like me and have no idea what a champion tree is, here is a description. Champion is a special designation given to huge trees. Now, the champion trees that grow in the Congaree National Forest include sweet gum, cherry bark oak, loblolly pine, and swamp chestnut oak. Here's an example just to put the scale of hugeness into perspective. One loblolly pine in the forest is somewhere along the lines of 167 feet tall. Now to put that in more relatable terms, let's compare it to a building. A one-story building is about 14 feet tall. That would make the loblolly pine just shy of a 12-story building. 12 stories. <laughs> that is huge for a tree. Insane. The park just sounds like it would be a lot of fun to hike through and would really have some amazing views one of these days.
As reported by LiveScience.com, a new temple was discovered in an ancient Roman city. The Roman city is named Feliri Novi, and it, it's still mostly underground, and that underground fact is kind of what makes this discovery a particularly interesting one. Let us first take a look at the how this all happened. Archaeologists used ground-penetrating radar technology to analyze the city in a new way. The way ground-penetrating radar technology works is that radar antenna send radio wave pulses down into the earth. When the radio waves run into something, they are either reflected, refracted, or scattered. And once those radio waves come back to the antenna, data describing what caused the change in the radio wave is collected. When that process is done, over and over and over and over again, all the data is processed and an image emerges of what is below the Earth's surface. With modern technology, that image is in 3D and detailed for objects up to 6.5 feet below Earth. To top things off, measurements were able to be taken every two inches using the ground-penetrating radar technology. That meant that the resulting image was of remarkable resolution. Now, back in the 90s, a study of the Faleri Novi was conducted using a magnetic survey, but the resulting image was a 2D map and had really quite low resolution, as measurements could only be taken every 6.5 feet or so. So today's image is a lot clearer. Now to the what. The image is that of the ancient Roman city, Faleri Novi. Located about 21 miles north of Rome in a rural area, it is about a 0.1 square mile area. So it's not really too big. While excavation has been carried out to a certain extent, there is still a long way to go before it's completely excavated. And that's why the whole ground penetrating radar thing is kind of a super good idea. They can speed up the process without having to go through all the intense labor of digging the city out. Now in the image, for the very first time, a temple, a market building, a bath complex, and a structure that archaeologists believe was a public monument were all revealed. They hadn't known about these things before, but due to this new study, they now know that these buildings are there, which is kind of neat. Even more interesting, the image revealed some really neat things about the city's water supply. The pipes that supplied water to the buildings ran diagonally underneath the buildings. While that doesn't really sound to be super amazing right away, that is actually a big deal. Now let me tell you why. A lot of Roman cities have been found to have water pipes that run along the major roadways that weave through their cities. Now, as the cities are built, a new pipe would be built along the road. With Faleri Novi, however, the pipes did not do that. The pipes ran at diagonals underneath the buildings and not along the roads. Now, in order for that to happen, the pipes would have to be put there before the buildings. Archaeologists have then reasoned that the pipes under the buildings imply that Faleri Novi must have been built with a detailed plan in mind. That right there is the ticket. Archaeologists are hoping that this excavation will shed some light into how extensive the urban planning was for Faleri Novi. Now the hope is that some insight will be shed onto how urban planning progressed for the Roman Empire as a whole. Because this, this city is just one of the many cities that was a part of the Roman Empire. And if this one shows the degree of planning that people were able to put into this city, 
Hopefully that'll give archaeologists an idea and maybe a way to gauge the level of urban planning that was put into place for other cities. So they're hoping to learn a lot from this. Kind of a, a, a weird detail that you wouldn't necessarily think about when analyzing an ancient city, but one that is nonetheless extremely important. Pipes, who would have thought? Some new insight has been given into the notion that all objects, regardless of their mass, are affected by gravity the same way. Now, for a lot of us, that idea has kind of been beat into our heads since elementary school. Everyone has heard the story of Galileo Galilei standing at the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropping two objects of different masses, like an apple and a bowling ball, for instance, at the same time and finding that they both hit the ground at the same time. Yeah, okay, that, that kind of makes enough sense, right? I mean, in everyday life, it's kind of easily observed. It was later tested on the moon with a hammer and a feather. Without any air resistance that would prevent such a successful demonstration on Earth, the little experiment was successful and went exactly as expected. Both the hammer and the feather hit the ground at the same time. One is obviously a lot heavier than the other, but that didn't matter. <laughs> it was all about them falling at the same rate. It was actually kind of funny. In the video of the demonstration on the moon, Commanders David Scott was the one dropping the, the, the hammer and the feather. After he did so, and the two items hit the ground, there was a bit of a pause, and he just said, how about that? And it was just so blunt. I thought it was kind of funny. So this, this concept is generally accepted. Unfortunately, though, most of the experimental results that prove it only reflect the behavior of objects in very small gravitational fields. And if you'll recall, all objects, and I mean everything, is supposed to be governed by that very principle. Everything from the tiniest particle of dust to the largest star in the universe is supposed to fall at the same rate. If you will, I would like you to just take a minute and think about that. Just mull that over a bit. Whether you know a lot about physics or a little, it, it doesn't matter. Just think for a moment about how that one simple idea unites everything. It applies to all matter. Think locally to you. A pencil, a chalkboard, a computer, your dinner last night. Maybe you don't want to think about that. In that case, don't think of something else. Now think about outer space. The sun, the moon, Mars, Jupiter, the Milky Way galaxy. When going from something like a pencil to the entire Milky Way galaxy, the magnitudes of matter are vastly different from one another. And yet, despite that, all of those things are supposed to fall at the same rate. Now, in a, in a physics class, you might have you might have learned about different things like waves or light or momentum, and there were many different equations and things to remember when presented with a problem in a certain topic. But with free fall, everything is supposed to be the same. The one principle that everything falls at the same rate is supposed to be universal. Now that is powerful. A truly marvelous or dare I say beautiful, idea to wrap your mind around. The general theory of relativity developed by Albert Einstein is actually based on the idea that everything falls at the same rate. He called it the strong equivalence principle. Now in order to prove that experimentally, however, scientists need to see how it holds up with objects that are a lot bigger than feathers or hammers. And I mean a lot bigger, a lot more massive. Try something along the lines of a neutron star. Neutron stars are right up there with black holes and being the most massive objects with the strongest gravitational fields out there. 
And as reported by LiveScience.com, physicists have used a pulsar to test the strong equivalence principle. And a pulsar is a special type of neutron star. So a neutron star, if we're starting here at the, the root of the, the chain there, is a collapsed star. It is huge and super dense. A pulsar is then a huge, super dense neutron star that rotates really fast and shoots out a beam of electromagnetic radiation from its pulse. And that beam of radiation is important. So hold on to that information for just one second. For the experiments we're talking about here, physicists studied the pulsar called J0337 plus 1715, but uh, let's call it Jimmy. Our pulsar Jimmy is doing a pretty interesting and yet wildly familiar dance out there in outer space. It is itself in a binary orbit with a white dwarf star. And that means that the two stars orbit around each other. Jimmy and the White Dwarf engaged in a constant twirl on the dance floor of outer space. And Jimmy and the White Dwarf are then in an orbit around another White Dwarf. So it's kind of like how moons orbit planets and then planets orbit stars. That's something we're all familiar with, the moon, the Earth, the sun. Only this time they're all stars and they're way far away from us. Back to that important bit of information regarding the electromagnetic radiation jetting outwards away from Jimmy's pulse. The radiation sent out by Jimmy is detectable here on Earth and manifests as pulses of light. You can think of it kind of like Jimmy as a lighthouse being whipped around in circles. What we can do is measure the time between the pulses of light from our lighthouse. Those measurements of time will tell us how Jimmy is moving. Jimmy's own spin, when paired with the orbit around the central white dwarf, then allows us to see if he is falling toward the star at the rate that we expect him to. For another analogy, imagine a kid yelling wildly as they spin around on a carousel. The louder the noise, the closer they are. The quieter the noise, the further away they are. Different types of waves, sound versus light, but the same idea. Jimmy, the pulsar, is our yelling boy. <laughs> now those measurements allowed for the construction of a detailed model of Jimmy's movements. The verdict, you ask? The experiment was a success. The results matched what was predicted by the general theory of relativity to a degree of 1.8 parts per million. And that is super precise. I have nothing more to say on the subject, except how about that? As far as music updates go, I have to first make a correction about last week's episode. The Lewis the Child and Oliver Tree albums that I announced would be released last week weren't. Both artists postponed their album release dates. The Lewis the Child album is now slated to be released on June 26th, and the Oliver Tree album is scheduled to be released on July 17th. Now to my music picks. This week my favorite music is by far the new Ha Hayun Sung EP entitled The Edge. The song's nostalgia and close are just ugh, exquisite. I am at the point now that I'm a little concerned that if I continue listening to it so much, I might cause the music to lose its effect. <laughs> now, an interesting fact that I discovered while listening to the Edge EP is that apparently Ha Hayun Sung is the vocalist for a group that I really like called Hapipola. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's H-O-P-P-I-P-O-L-A. While listening to the EP, I was like, he sure does sound familiar. Wait, he sounds like the singer from Hapipola. <laughs> or Hapipola, whatever it is. <laughs> and sure enough, 
He is. And that 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 was um that was kind of a fun discovery. It's always neat when you you like um you're listening to a song and you're like, boy, that sounds like something else like they sampled some other song and then you're on a mad chase to find out what song it was you're scaring the internet youtube comments and previewing all kinds of songs on itunes and then you find it and it's like yes yes that's exactly what it was this was kind of like that but a lot shorter i didn't have to hunt around so long but it, it was neat also i found that the entire soundtrack for the netflix tv show the king eternal monarch has been released in one one release and the, the the more piecemeal release of singles that had been happening up until this point had been a bit concerning i must admit because i debated buying them but i'm like i can't just buy a bunch of singles so seeing that all the songs are now released on a single soundtrack that that was a big relief <laughs> there you have it that's my music update i'm asher leomund and I want to thank you for listening to this archive episode from the Spoondrift pilot series, Conjuring Curiosity. If you want to listen to the music that I talked about, you can check out my Spotify profile, the Spoondrift Podcast, and listen to the Spoondrift Archive 4 playlist. For more episodes of the Spoondrift, you can visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spinnaker Radio's home on the web, radio.unfspinnaker.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date on everything to do with the Spoondrift, you can follow me on Twitter at SpoondriftPod, that's at SpoondriftPod, or on Instagram at SpoondriftPodcasts. Feel free to let the mind wander a bit, and I will talk to you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.